now for a few weeks is that the community of, of Jesus, right, this thing that we call the church, is defined first and foremost by the cross. So that means our, our identity, who we are, and our boast, our glory. I told our kids at Catechism Club, right, that the, the way to understand glory, something's glory, is it that, that thing that makes you say, wow, right? So God's glory is the thing that makes you say, wow. And what we've been learning from Paul in this letter to the first, uh, this first letter to the Corinthians is that our boast, the thing that makes us say, wow, is actually the cross. And that's kind of strange, isn't it? Kind of peculiar that our identity, that, that, that what shapes our community, what we're all about is this strange message about the Son of God who allowed Himself to be shamefully executed on a Roman cross. Now, that's something that's so common to us, right, that it, uh, maybe in our context, we're so used to hearing about Jesus dying on a cross, forgiving our sins, blah, 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 right, that it's become ordinary to us, right? That no longer, that no longer has any uh, shock value. So let's kind of revisit this idea. Why, why do I say that it's strange, weird even, that we would identify, that we would uh, find our identity in the cross? Because in Jesus' day, and when Paul wrote this roughly about 25 years after Jesus died, so in this first century, you didn't want anything to do with a cross, right? You didn't want... It, it, was, it was something uh, that you would recoil from, right? This talk of crucifixion and the cross. And it makes sense when you think about it, right? All of the things, all of the things that we treasure most, the cross is not, right? Uh, so the cross is physically disgusting, right? That... That this, this sight, the very sight of a cross, of a person being crucified, would probably make you sick to your stomach. A naked, bruised, bleeding body hung out in the elements. It was wretched. Uh, it was excruciating, unimaginably painful. I mean, yes, there's the whole metal spikes driven through your hands and feet thing. But that's not actually how you died. You died, if I'm medically correct, from asphyxiation, not being able to breathe. Eventually, your body would lose strength trying to hold yourself up so that you could get a full breath of air. Eventually, your body would just give out and you would sag down. It, it took a long time for people to die. Incredibly excruciating experience. And maybe even more than that. So most of us probably would put up with pain. Uh, and most of us would probably can even... Uh, we've got a number of nurses in the room, so you know how to put up with things that are disgusting, right? But probably the most... Uh, the thing we would want to avoid most of all about the cross is it was incredibly embarrassing. It was humiliating. If you had a friend or family member who was crucified, you didn't talk about it. Uh, you didn't, you most certainly didn't brag about it. It'd be like having a parent who was a pedophile. You just wouldn't even bring it up. You would seek to ignore it. You would avoid the unpleasant 
truth. It was a curse, a black mark on your family. Uh, People would probably whisper about you in corners. That's what it was like to be associated with the cross. So, painful, uh, embarrassing, disgusting, right? We spend tons of time and money avoiding all three of those realities, right? Like, we believe that the best life is not found in anything that is uh, painful, embarrassing, or disgusting. And yet, Paul says that that's exactly what defines the church. Why? Because God has chosen what seems utterly stupid to the human mind to save the human race. That's what we've been saying over the past couple of weeks, that God has chosen what is utterly moronic. That's the word he uses for foolish in these verses we've been looking at. God chooses what is utterly moronic, stupid to us. We can't even fathom fathom it. He chooses that to save us. No sane person on the planet would say, yes, the cross. But God says, yes, the cross for my son and glory for you. Why does God do that? Why does God use something so foolish to us to save his people? So that we will boast in him and not in ourselves. So that we will look beyond ourselves and we would look at God and we would say, wow. Instead of admiring ourselves. Because in Corinth and in Clanton, we love to make much of ourselves. That's called pride. And it's what's tearing up the church in Corinth. And so Paul begins there by reminding them and us of the cross. The cross humbles all our human effort and magnifies the grace and wisdom of God. Well, it's a very heavy way to start, but that's just, that's the message that we've been hearing from Paul. And we're going to continue in that theme now as we pick up in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Your bulletin says we're going to go all the way through verse 16, but we're actually just going to look at the first five verses of uh, chapter 2 today. So uh, let's uh, give attention to God's Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, if you want to use one of the Bibles in the rack there in front of you, you'll find it on page 952. Paul says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God, with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Let's pray. God in heaven, would you take this word and would you apply it to our hearts? Would you bless the reading and the hearing and the preaching of your holy word, so that, Lord, we would believe and be transformed? God, help us to see the astonishing grace of the gospel again. To know your love, to know your salvation, and to give ourselves wholly 
to you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so, the Corinthians, this is who the letter was written to, had, had uh, started boasting in some special teachers, right? Different people who had come along and had really made their mark on the church. They were, they were starting to align themselves with different celebrity preachers that had come through the church. And so Paul has to come in and, and kind of issue a correction there, right? They're tearing the church apart. And so Paul says, no, 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 let's go back. Right? Let's go back to the first thing. Let's go back to what's most important. Let's get underneath your pride and let's, and let's talk about the cross, which is obviously not something that's very comfortable to talk about. And so, there's a, we're, we're really kind of continuing the same theme that we started with last week, that, that what God has done in Jesus is astonishing to us. Like, it's not the way that we would choose to save ourselves. It is so counter to the way that we think. It is so counter to what we look for. It, it, it frustrates our human strength. It frustrates our human wisdom, right? So, this is totally from God. And here are the, the three things that we're going to see in this passage. The first one is this. And what Paul is doing is, uh, he's talking about what it looks like to be a witness for the gospel. We'll talk about that. Uh, so, the first thing is this, that the message is more important than the messenger. The message is more important than the messenger. Second, the messenger points to the message. And then finally, the message itself is what holds the power to change. So, not the speaker, not his ability, not his skill set, but the actual message about what Jesus has done. That's that's what Paul wants us to focus on in these few verses. So let's uh, let's just dive right in. In uh, Corinth, the art of rhetoric, of persuading people with your words, right? Being a good public speaker was huge. This was a big deal in Greek culture. People trained for this. They actually competed in this, right? Uh, there were some, you could call them like the sub-Olympic games, the Isthmian games. I can't even say that word right, but it's Isthmus. Yeah, right? So the Isthmian, I see, I still didn't get it. The Isthmian games, right? They even probably had speaking competitions. They loved uh, to hear. Audience would, audiences would pay big dollars and come from miles around just to hear good speakers, right? It's... It's celebrity culture. We lo- they love people. We and and in that way they're like us, right? We love big personalities. We love clever words. We we really latch on to people who can turn a phrase. Uh, we really start to think, right? Uh, just think, just think of the motivational speaking culture. I don't know if uh, you know guys like Tony Evans. Um, what, like these big personalities who come and, right, we want to flock to the stadium to hear what they have to say because they've got, right, the keys to success, healthy living, prosperity, right, they've got the answers. Uh, this morning I, this morning I looked up the top 50, uh, the, the top 50 biggest, like, pub, um, public speakers. Mr. T was number three. I had no idea, right? Pity, pity the fool. All right. But it makes sense when you think about it. We love big personalities. I mean, we do this with our politicians, right? 
If someone can lead us with their words, it, they don't even have to really make good on what they promise. Because we just want to hear what they have to say. We love the big personality and the turn of phrase. 1960 was uh, the closest presidential election after, I think, like 1915. Okay? Anybody remember who was running for president in 1960? Tim? Nixon and JFK. Now, there were several reasons why JFK ended up winning the vote. Several, several, several different things come into play. But most pundits will tell you that the reason that Kennedy was able to beat Nixon is because there was this new technology spreading into every home. It was called the television, right? And for the first time, presidential b- debates were televised. And so the watching world sees uh, good-looking... Sharp-talking John F. Kennedy compared with not very attractive, doesn't handle himself well in front of a camera, Richard Nixon. Right Now, Nixon was the more uh, experienced candidate, but JFK won the nation with his personality and his words. We love big personalities. We love people who can use words well. So it would make sense, right, that the church, which is a which is a group of people rooted in words, should love the same things, right? That we should love big personalities. We should love people who use words well. We want the same thing. We want well-spoken masters of speech and persuasion, right? Well, let's just look and see what Paul says, how he describes Himself. He's going he's gonna to tell us exactly what uh, you want to look for in an ideal preacher. He says, When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Wait a second, what? He says he came using the opposite of clever words. Hmm. Okay. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We'll come back to that. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Isn't that what you're looking for in a in a powerful leader, right? Somebody who's timid and wringing their hands and doesn't know if if this is going to work out or not. Isn't that what you want? And yet that's exactly how Paul says he came to this church in Corinth. This was the person who converted and who started the church. So the message is more important than the messenger. Let's talk about that, these first two verses, right? Because Paul completely turns over, completely reverses what we think a good speaker should be. And in doing that, he's, he's showing us that the message of Jesus is really more important than the one who delivers it. Right, we want to follow the strong leader almost regardless of what he says or she says. Right? And Paul says, No, 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 no. The message is more important than the messenger. Right? Look again at verse two. He says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The message of Jesus Christ is more important than anything else, is what Paul is saying. Now, 
What's probably happening is that someone in the church has come along or maybe several different teachers in the church have come along and have said, all right, yes, Jesus is the ABCs of the Christian faith, right? This is, yes, that's, that's key and important, but it's really time that we move on. It's, that's, that's the elementary. We want to move on. We want to put on our big boy britches now, right? We're going to move on to the next level. Um, there's some more things you need to learn. There are some more things we need to get to. So let's just, let's leave Jesus over here and let's move on to the higher order stuff. And Paul says, no, that's not how you learned it. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's all I sought to know among you. Big personalities, clever words. They're great when it comes to leadership seminars, TED Talks, motivational speeches. But the church isn't led by big personalities with persuasive speeches talking about the latest thing. It's led by a crucified and risen King named Jesus. He is the one who speaks. He is the one who saves. So Paul says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Why? Because that's the one thing that will transform everything else. Listen, if you hear, and I think we, we, need, to, we need to talk about this because we, we're prone to the same mistake, right? We think, well, yeah, okay, we've talked about the cross and I'm a sinner and I need a Savior, sure. But I mean, isn't there more? Isn't there, isn't there more for us to deal with and talk about? I mean, cause the cross is just about where I'm gonna end up when I die. And friend, if that's what you think, if you think that the cross is just about your eternal destination, just about where you end up when you die, then no wonder you're bored with it. Cause that's not what the cross is about. The message of the cross is not about what happens to you after you die. That's really just one sliver of the message of the cross. The message of the cross actually applies to everything else. Right? The more we understand the cross, the better we parent. The more we understand the cross, the healthier our marriages are. The more we understand the cross, the better we lead the better we run our own businesses or work, the better we play. The message of the cross actually applies to all of life, but not by moving on from the cross, but staying right there at it. What do I mean? The cross doesn't simply speak to what happens when you die. The cross, first and foremost, speaks about who you are apart from God. The first word, so to speak, of the cross is that you are a rebel. That apart from God, you are running headlong in the opposite direction. That you have looked at your good and holy creator and said, I want nothing to do with you. The universe would be better if I were God. The cross speaks about who we are apart from God and we are sinful but the cross also speaks about what God has done to bring us back to Himself. Paul says this in his letter to the Romans, Romans 5, 8, and 9. He says, God shows His love for us in that when we got our act together, Christ died for us. That's not what he says, by the way. 
Right? He says, God shows His love for us. God demonstrates His love in that while we were still sinners. While we were still running in the opposite direction, Christ died for us. As in, before we made a move towards Him, Christ died for us. He says in that same chapter, while we were enemies, shaking our fist at the heavens, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified, declared not guilty. Since we have been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from God's wrath. That means that sinners deserving of God's wrath are pardoned in the cross. That's the message that the cross speaks. It's not just a message for when you die, but it's a message that has implications for the way that you live every day. The guilty are forgiven at the cross. Slaves become sons and daughters through the cross. Sinners become saints through the cross. That's the good news of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's what Paul says, I didn't want to know anything else. I'm going to camp out right there. And we're going to camp there until Jesus comes back. Because that's all we've got to say. That doesn't mean it doesn't have anything to say about the trauma in your life, in your past, nor about how you live in the future, but that everything that we could possibly... uh, Every area of life derives hope and life from this. It doesn't just pertain to your life after death. It transforms and renews your life now. If you're prone to arrogance, the cross puts you in your place. If you're prone to self-pity, the cross gives you hope. If you despise others, the cross shows you how to love. If you're prone to anger, the cross shows you how to be patient and kind. If you don't care too much about your holiness, the cross says your sin has to be crucified, so repent. And if you focus too much on your sinfulness, the cross says, your Savior became sin for you. Believe. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Jesus Christ and Him crucified, the word of the cross is the first thing and the last thing and everything in between. The more that we as a church define ourselves by the standard of Calvary, the more we will be the people Jesus calls us to be. The more that we repent and believe in light of the cross, the more and more we will bear the fruit of the Spirit. The more and more we will be life-giving to our neighbors and friends. The cross is everything, which is why Paul says he knew nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So the message is more important than the messenger. 
The message of the cross is more important than the messenger Paul. But then he says this, he says, the messenger points to the message. So Paul's way of life actually demonstrates the power of the cross. Again, in Corinth and in America, we love swagger, right? We love, we want to follow people who are brash and powerful, confident in themselves, right? We love this, we love self-confidence because it exudes power and authority. We get behind people like that. But that doesn't really jive with the message of the cross, does it? It's hard to be self-confident when there's a, uh, when there's a cross towering over you that says you have no reason to be confident in yourself. And so Paul, Paul even points out how even his way of life, even his frame of mind points people back to the message. His, the messenger points to the message. Look at verse 3 again. He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Exactly how you would define the ideal uh, presidential candidate, right? Weakness, fearful, much trembling. Paul doesn't come into Corinth with any swagger at all. Nothing about him says, look at me. Don't you want what I've got? Quite the opposite. You wouldn't look at him and say, ah, there's a man we want to follow. Apparently, Paul wasn't even very physically attractive. Possibly something was even wrong with him, right? He tells the Galatians in chapter 4 that it was an affliction, something wrong with his body, a weakness, same word, uh, that drove him to them in the first place. And they kind of, and they put up with him. They loved him. They cared for him, right? So Paul apparently, um, even from 2 Corinthians, we learn that while his words were weighty, when he showed up in person, he wasn't much to look at. He wasn't very impressive. Beware of preachers with three-piece suits and jets. Trevor Morgan sings this. Beware of strangers who talk about love and bear no scars. There's no way around it. Love leaves its mark. The messenger of the gospel is as humble as the message of the gospel. Because the messenger of the gospel has no need for the, to be a philosopher. He has no need to be a motivational speaker. His power is not with the turn of a phrase, but the, but the, the influence of the Holy Spirit. Now, does that mean that Christians are supposed to be weak worms? wringing their hands, stammering? What about other passages that talk about boldness and confidence and courage? Are those bad things? Paul, Paul's not saying that there's no place for a forceful word. Uh, Paul's not even saying that you can't be a good speaker. His friend Apollos was a good speaker was a good communicator. He was able, he was a well-trained orator, right? He was a good public speaker. Is Paul saying you can't be that person? No, what Paul is pointing out 
He's trying to point to humility as the mark of the messenger, right? The gospel messenger at his, at his most fundamental is not a philosopher or a motivational speaker. He's a witness. That's what Paul says back in verse 1. I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony. Who is it that bears testimony in a court? It's a witness, right? The messenger is a witness, a motivational speaker. He draws attention to himself. His job is to make you believe him so that you will buy what he's selling. Do what I'm telling you to do and your life will be amazing, right? Follow these five easy steps and you will be a millionaire, CEO, who everybody is happy to work for and you'll never have to fire anybody, right? It'll be wonderful, amazing. Just listen to me. But a witness, a witness just tells you what they've seen. A witness's job is not to draw attention to himself, but to draw attention to the truth, to the facts of the case. A witness points people away from himself to Jesus. And so Paul says, I didn't come with skillful words. I didn't come to wow you with my communicating ability. I just came to point you to Jesus. I came to point you to the cross to bear witness about that. A gospel witness doesn't point people to himself. His way of life and his manner of speaking point people to Jesus. That would be true. That We, we want that to be true of Grace Fellowship. That more than anything, we want to point people away from ourselves to Jesus. Why? Because it's only Jesus that holds the power to change. It's only the gospel, the good news about Jesus that holds the power for change. Look again at verses 4 and 5. He says, My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. That word plausible uh, means crafty or persuasive, enticing Paul says, that's not what my words were to you. They're very simple. Uh, my speech and my message were not in, in enticing words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Why? So that your faith would not rest in human wisdom, but in the power of God. Paul says, I didn't come with eloquent words trying to entice you. I was not a smooth salesman. All right? I'm not trying to sell you anything. Paul wants us trusting in the right thing. And human skill and ability are a poor place to put your trust. Every eloquent teacher, every motivational speaker, they will eventually disappoint. They cannot keep it up forever. I was talking with a friend of mine who's a member of a... Uh, a CrossFit community in Birmingham. It sounds weird to call it that, but so it is. Right? Uh, and these, uh, these gyms, these, these CrossFit communities, uh, they draw people in, right? They, ra- they have, it's, it's amazing. They, uh, obviously by using it in the third person, I'm clearly not a member of such a community, but, right? They draw people together around this kind of exercise. And it's kind of, it's kind of interesting to see that people otherwise who would not be bound together are bound together at these gyms. 
And I looked at my friend Martin and I said, Martin, I don't, I don't know how to compete with that. Right? How do we, how do we, how do we help people who, right? Because in the, in the church, right, we want to create a sense of community, but I can't compete with deadlifts, oddly enough, right? Martin, I can't compete with that. And, and Martin said, Kevin, we have something that's so much better. You won't be able to exercise like that forever. Your body will give out eventually. He's like, at the end of the day, it's really salvation by works. Because as soon as you can't keep pace with the rest of the people in your, in your gym, you're done. There's no belonging for you anymore. You fall away because you can't keep up. It's another, it's another form of salvation by works. It's like we have something so much better. We have a message that says God invites us to Himself through no work of our own. He saves us and makes us His own through no work of our own. No amount of spiritual pull-ups or deadlifts or runs through the soccer field will, will bring you closer to God. God Himself does that. The message itself is what holds the power to change. Everything else will disappoint. What does Paul mean, right? So he says... Um, in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would rest in the power of God. What is he, what's he talking about power? What does he mean by God's power? Uh, is Paul talking about miracles? And if, so if the answer to that is yes, then what Paul is saying is, uh, remember, Corinthians, I used miracles, right? I used these amazing supernatural displays of power to convince you that what I was saying was true. Right? I use miracles to prove the reality of the cross. That's possible, but that doesn't really fit what Paul's been saying this whole chapter, right? This whole letter. That, it actually seems like Paul says the exact opposite. Look back at chapter 1, verse 22 through 24. He says, For Jews demand signs, miracles, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we Preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So Paul says, even though Paul did miracles and Jesus did miracles, I don't think he's talking about miracles here. I think he's talking about Jesus himself. We'll talk about that in a minute. The reason I don't think he's talking about miracles is... Because miracles are inadequate to save you. Jesus did a ton of miracles. And nobody believed Him. All of His opponents asked Him to do more signs. And yet every time, they saw the signs He did and refused to believe in Him. Miracles, displays of power in that way, will not save you. I don't think that's what Paul's talking about. So when Paul says, the power of God, I think he's talking about... Uh, the gospel of Jesus, he says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to salvation for all who believe. I think when Paul's talking about the power of God, he's talking about the message about Jesus and the way that it changes you when it gets into your heart. So when Paul says, look, I'm not trusting my skill, I'm trusting what God did in you through my message. Look at your lives. 
Look at how the Holy Spirit has worked in you. The power of God is demonstrated in a person's life when they believe in Jesus and are changed by the Holy Spirit. That's the power of God at work. That's what proves Paul's point. So Paul preached and taught and talked in such a way that people wouldn't trust their lives to human wisdom, but to the power of God. Paul relied not on his power and abilities, but on God's power and abilities. He says, my speech and my message were not in persuasive words of wisdom. Is Paul saying that we're not supposed to be persuasive? We're not supposed to talk with people in a winsome way to try to convince them of something? No. Uh, Paul, listen, Paul was a persuasive speaker and a deep thinker. People have spent countless hours pondering his writings and oceans of ink writing about what he says. His words were very potent, very profound. But what Paul is saying is that he didn't present himself to them to gain a following. Paul is not interested in followers. He's not interested in likes. All right? Paul doesn't want people to rest in him, in his skill or his appearance. He wants people to rest in the power of God demonstrated at the cross. One preacher has said that there was more of Corinth in the church than of Christ. That the culture of Corinth had begun infiltrating and working in the church. And I think that's true in our case as well. That we will always, we will always drink from the fountain of culture. We, we, we swim in it most of the hours of our day. So whether it's the talking heads uh, on cable news or it's the constant feed of uh, your Twitter or Facebook, we're always, we're always listening to voices. We're always listening to speakers who seek to persuade us and push us in a direction. And we need to be very careful to, to be, that we're not pulled away from the cross, that, that we imbibe more of culture than we do of Christ. Because the message that the church is built on is one of weakness. At least, it's one of human weakness. But it is one of God's power. In fact, that God's power, as Paul would say in 2 Corinthians, is made perfect in our weakness. So we don't have to use human strength. We don't have to use human wisdom. Our message actually, as we're going to find out more next week, is beyond human wisdom. It is the wisdom of God. So, as you feel the pull, the pull to trust the the polish, as you feel the pull to trust smooth speakers, people who want to tell you, who want to lead you away from the cross, from the humiliating cross of Christ, let's hear Paul's call back, right? To know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Let's renounce self-confidence and place our trust in the only thing that will do any good for us or the world, Jesus Christ Himself. Let's pray. Father in heaven, oh Lord, how much... uh, how much we long to trust ourselves, to believe 
all of the nice things that people say. To follow bombastic personalities with big promises. And to forget that the Jesus of Calvary came not as a shining king, but as a suffering servant. And that as a suffering servant, he saved us. That the way up to glory is actually the way down through the cross. Remind us, Lord, that our unity is found in you. It is found in what the cross says is true about us. And also what it says about what you have done for us. That we are yours through no effort of our own. No amount of wisdom or learning or strength could do what you have done. Help us to find our unity at Calvary. Not in our political affiliation. Not in our hobbies. But may everything that we do, everything that we value, may our identity be in the cross, shaped by the gospel, so that our boast is in you. That we would look at what you have done for us and say, wow. And being enamored of that, we would draw others to you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.